Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. Hi, Anna. Hi, Tammy. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anna, would you mind just telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself, just your background and what you currently do now? Yeah, of course. So I started off nursing in the late, I started my nurse training on Christmas Eve, actually, in 1989, which makes me feel very old, and uh, spent over 20 years working in the NHS and third sector charities, working predominantly with people with acquired and traumatic brain injury, following either in intensive care or rehabilitation. So I spent a lot of years on the front line. I eventually became, I, I hate, <laughs> pause to say that, but I was called a matron for a while. Never saw myself as a matron, but uh, <laughs> I was briefly one for a while. And then moved into working in third sector. I was a hospital registered manager um, in a mental health hospital for people again with brain injury. Then worked for nearly five years with people with autism. And then into my current role, which is for another third sector charity, working with people with substance misuse problems and working with people with other multiple disadvantages. Brilliant. Thank you, Anna. So you've kind of given a real, well, first of all, absolutely, your career spans a few decades now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all good experience. So I think um, as we get older, we get wiser. That's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you've given examples there of you actually spent years on the front line before going into management, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, staff nurse and then um, ward sister. And I have, um, I'm visualising you as a matron. Yeah, we didn't call them matrons. I was thinking about it just then. I was called an inpatient services manager, but it was like the equivalent. It sounded very grand, but yes. So I oversaw a couple of wards, an intensive care unit and a day surgery unit, all in, in one job, over seven floors. So it was very fit. So I was running up and down the stairs all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the in-services patient manager sounds kinder than the term matron, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Those people I used to look blank at me, so they used to go, I'm a matron, and then you could see, oh, yeah, now I get what you do, yeah. Oh, yeah, now I know what it is, yeah. yeah. The seven floors must have been a bit of a killer as well. Yes, yeah, I don't know if I can do it now, but yeah, I used to... <laughs> and now you've risen to kind of strategic heights, really, aren't you? You're an exec director in your yeah, current role. Yes, I am, yes. So, yeah, I oversee some operational services. I think there's around 300 staff in all. But then I also oversee clinical services and I'm responsible for the quality and performance of our services for the whole organisation. So, yeah. Sounds a lot and it sounds very different and it is and that's why I love it. No two days are the same. Never know what's going to come up. Yeah, really different, but actually really quite... I can see why your career's got in that journey because it's all very much connected to people, isn't it? And helping people live their best life. Absolutely. And that took a while for me to understand. I used to think it was ironic that you became really good as a staff nurse at somebody's bedside and then you got promoted. And then I suddenly remember realising I didn't see patients as much. And actually, 
that's still why I, I get up on the morning because I love that interaction with patients, service users, beneficiaries, depending on what environment I'm in. And it took me a while to realise that actually, although I wasn't at the bedside anymore, I was influencing people at the bedside or at the front line and supporting them. My job now is to enable them to be able to do their job the best they can do. That's how I see it now, which it was a bit of a light bulb moment some years ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because actually you're making that bigger difference by supporting over 300 staff members to do their job really well as well. So yeah, I can see why you needed that that light bulb to happen though, if actually what was motivating you was seeing that difference and seeing that change. Yes, yeah. Obviously, current circumstances aside, everybody knows when I've got a big report to fit in or complete or a deadline because I'll be in reception or I'll be somewhere around having servitudes and getting generally in the way. <laughs> that seems to be what fills up my soul. So you balance yourself out. So you're going to have a few hours with services and such like before you go into the drudge of the, yeah, um, yeah I need to do this report. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've even been known to sort of like, you know, cleaning clinics and <laughs> girthing boards, just, you know, yeah. Yeah, that, that's some um, desperation, I think. Today we're here, Anna, to speak specifically about emotional resilience. Yeah. And I know we've we've talked already about the fact that kind of the aim of this podcast really is to help frontline professionals and then professionals in management roles, working with people who have complex needs and vulnerabilities, helping them to, I guess, not feel so alone if they're struggling and to recognise that other people struggle too. Yeah. And then also to hopefully share with them some things that have worked for us as individuals. And when you're talking, you've got the frame of reference that is a frontline worker, an operational manager, and an exec director. So we have lots of different directions that we could kind of cover this from. So I'm going to kind of hand over to you and just, I guess, first of all, ask you if you would mind telling us how you interpret the term emotional resilience. And I guess whether your interpretation has changed over your lengthy career. And then we'll have a look at kind of the, I guess, how it's worked for you and how you've managed at different points in your career, if that's okay. Yes, sure. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Fantastic. So do tell us then. So when I contacted you and asked you to speak to us about emotional resilience, did you ever think about what that term means to you? I did. And I did resist and I still haven't Googling it because that would have been easy. I have given it some thought. And for me, I think it's around you don't know what's going to really don't know what's going to come at you, especially as a frontline worker and less so in, in my current role. And so for me, emotional resilience back in the day was being able to cope with everything that was being thrown at me that day, whether it be a, a busy ward, multiple traumas coming in, concerned, upset, sometimes angry relatives, patients that could be the same, tragedies that were happened, you know, which could happen in those circumstances. So it was being able to manage all that and continue to function and do my job and then be able to go home to rest to come back the next day that's different now my definition would be very different now because of my attitude I think and my I've got more of a self-preservation now when I was nursing I did spend a few years believing that I should put up and be able to cope with anything because I had that uniform on and I was a nurse and that's what we were supposed to do. That was in a background, a backdrop, sorry, of 
an environment that prided itself on remember this was in the early 90s it's very different now but it was in a background of people wearing their traumas the badge of pride that they could put up with anything even be assaulted at times physically and still doesn't bother me you know we're all a great team just get on with it it's part of the job I don't believe that anymore and I learned the hard way why I don't believe that but that's how I felt at the time when I was frontline working and I think we lose a lot of good people because of that culture that people work in, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And actually, I did a podcast with somebody just a few days ago who was a probation officer for over 20 years. And actually, she describes exactly what you're describing now okay. from the early 90s. She describes that from 2017 in her career. Okay. She describes okay. the culture of put up and shut up. That's yeah. what she you know get on with it shoulders back you're a probation officer you should be able to deal with this and then if you were struggling in any way it being seen as a weakness she describes that very much as actually what led to her really burning out so it's interesting that you've made the exact same connections from your early career you said something really interesting you said "I, I don't believe that now You've got over 300 staff that you kind of support through managers, through managers, you know, through that hierarchical process and such like. What do you believe now? What do you think when you think of emotional resilience now or if one of your staff members asked you about it? If you now don't think that is the definition, what, what do you think is? It's being able to manage and get back to an equilibrium. And I believe the way and a feeling of well-being which I know is quite a subjective term. It's not just the absence of feeling unwell. It's feeling full of life, vitality, wanting to get up on a morning, uh, not facing the day with dread. It's the environment I was in. To have said that, or I believe, if I'd said that when I was nursing, I would have been considered quite selfish because I was there to serve and look after others. But my strong belief now is unless we look after ourselves and each other, how can we look after anyone else? Um, oh, Anna, <laughs> I just want to go, yay! <laughs> so true. And that's exactly what we say for all the reasons that you're, you're just given. Yeah, because we're at the end of the day, and I think it's a, I think that would be a different subject for a podcast, but it's a bit, again, a, there's an arrogance sometimes to caring. And there's this, poor you, I'm a professional, I will look after you. So I must be better than you because I've got the resilience and you haven't. Actually, we're all in this together. Uh, We've all got lots to learn from each other. And I think my biggest, bestest teachers, is that a word, bestest? My bestest teachers (laughs) have been been my patients. I know it might sound cheesy, but absolutely. I've often said to, I used to mentor student nurses for a while, and I used to say, I didn't learn how to be a nurse till I qualified. And I still believe that. So it, yeah, unless you can, and I think my now my role, obviously I'm not on the front line anymore, is to role model. I grew up, if you like, in an environment where, as we said, it was very put up, shut up. And they were my leaders at the time that were telling me that. Now as a leader, I hopefully will role model the behaviour. And it is sometimes, it feels very vulnerable when somebody will ring me up and I'll say, if you want my full engagement with whatever it is right now, I can't give it you. If I've got to the end of my day or even my resilience at the end of that day, 
come with this weight until tomorrow. Obviously, it's an emergency. I'm not going to say I'm not talking to you today. And it's just to let them know that we have that negotiation and it's all right to do that. And I think when I was working in, um, in the mental health hospital, people can behave in a way that, you know, whether it be a patient or, or a staff member or your family, they hook you in, don't they? And you can get more and more. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done to walk away from a service, uh, sorry, a patient who was at the time was really challenging, but you could see in a lot of emotional pain. And I wanted to help them and make them better. And it was one of the hardest moments of my career when I looked at a colleague and went, I need to step away because I'm not helping this person. I'm doing them more harm. You need to step in. Because I was the manager, he perceived I, it was me personally keeping him there. He was detained under the Mental Health Act, so he kind of had a point. So me being there, stood there, saying you're not going home, was just making matters. Does that make sense? We're just yeah. making matters. And it was it was like a real pivotal moment. You know, and you have those in your career. And I remember being so upset having to walk away and having a few tears, actually, but because all the staff then could see well, actually, oh God, the boss is vulnerable. The boss has had to acknowledge that she couldn't help this person and I had to ask somebody to step in. So I think that kind of role modelling is really important. I always make sure, I'm like many people, I'm a working mum, so I'll work out of hours, but I'm really clear that I'm not, people very rarely get emails from me out of hours. I'll leave them in my outbox until working hours or I'll say, yes, I worked late last night. I'm going to take a few hours. Or just So I'm realm of responsible behaviour and not having this environment where in another organisation where it was a badge of honour how many hours you'd put in in a day and how many hours you'd been travelling to different meetings and wasn't useful at all for anybody. But that was, oh, I worked 14 hours yesterday. Oh, well, I did. 50, you know, and that kind of, I'm really fortunate now that I've worked in an organisation that they don't have that value at all. And actually, looking back, I know I'm far more effective and efficient now in my work than I ever was. And I broadly keep to my working hours. And some weeks, yes, sometimes you have to go over maybe because of the deadline, but then I know other weeks I'll get that back. Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, it's, it's interesting because as you've kind of told the story of three different organisations there, in each one, you've really spoken to the culture of that organisation yeah. um, yeah. and how important actually that, that cultural setting is and what your peers are doing. Depending on where you are, you know, you talked about being kind of a young nurse. And actually, if we think of kind of the length of our careers, you know, you were you were quite new to working you were quite junior and actually you were looking to your leaders to set that culture and that culture was set but not necessarily in a way that was most beneficial and now you're talking about you being a leader and actually you role modeling and setting that culture and you said something really key in between that you said I've recognized I'm much more effective and efficient now yes but you're talking about putting in less hours I know how how can you be (laughs) Because it it comes back to the values and the culture of the organisation and I am very happy where I work and I regularly say it's because I found my tribe and I work with people who have similar values to me and we all know and understand and maybe I've not talked to them in depth but maybe we've all gone through a similar journey of 
realizing that it you know nobody i defy anyone that can tell me they're effective if they're working seven days a week 14 hours a day which at one point i was because you end up with your head down slogging away there's no creativity there's no thinking outside the box you can barely think let alone outside any metaphorical <laughs> box <laughs> you can't do anything other than that front leadership hoping that everybody's following you behind so that takes all the energy and the creativity from them because you haven't got time to engage with your staff team and develop them and have those really great rich discussions because you're all head down working and driving up and down the m1 i can tell you every service station on the m1 and whether <laughs> That's not, as I suspect, what my employer paid me to do, but that's where I spent a lot of my time. And away from home. So all the things when you're looking at coming back to emotion, resilience and what you need and your assets that you need to keep you well are your connections to your community, your family and friends to have a balance of work and play. If you're working 14 hours a day away from home, away from your friends and family how can that be conducive to any well-being on any level at all you know it it makes people ill and and, yeah yeah no I completely agree and I think from a frontline perspective when people are running so fast that they're not running very well and I think like I know on the podcast the probation officer that I mentioned she talked about actually how her relationships with service users really suffered because actually she didn't have the time or the energy to actually put into delivering a good service to them and actually because she was then in the role where she was doing what she was doing for the same reasons you and I do it that actually we want to make a difference we want to support people and and that's what fills us up and so then she had that guilt cycle of the fact that she wasn't even doing a good job at what she was doing even though she was giving it every single thing she's got And that, from my perspective, that isn't fair, you know, because when people come to services like the ones that we work with, they come because they need us and they need us to be able to support them in a way that is the most effective we can do. And if we're showing up and not being able to do that because we're either working too many hours, have too many people on our caseload and not managing to balance work and play at all, then actually... We might think we're doing brilliantly and giving everything that we've got, but actually we're not giving our best self either. No, you end up not doing right by anybody. Yeah, you just can't. (laughs) It just doesn't work in that way at all, does it? And it is, I know from my perspective, some of the, when we run professional boundary sessions, it's really interesting because there's such a strong correlation between emotional resilience and professional boundaries. Professional boundaries are the first thing to start kind of wavering when people's emotional resilience is low and it's interesting to see that because then it can become that cycle and things can just get worse and worse and worse and again if we then start blaming ourselves for that that that's not beneficial either no no I think yeah we try and do I mean it's not perfect and I'm you know we're learning I'm learning all the time but it's that kind of acknowledgement and that discussion and supervision and just talking to people and the managers that I work with, you know, yeah, just sometimes we get it wrong. And the professional boundaries, not only with service users, but the professional boundaries with colleagues as well. 
that can get muddied as well at times. And especially when, as I say, if the only people you see are your work colleagues because you're not getting any time at home, of course that happens, you know. So, yeah, so it's that, I think for that resilience for me now, it's making sure you look after yourself and, and be selfish. That's what you need to be, be able yeah. to look after others. Absolutely. And really importantly, in the role that you're in now is the role modelling that for other people, because actually, if those new members of staff come in, and they see that from you, then actually, they're far more likely to act in that way. And as much as there's all of the benefits for the service users, they'll be delivering a better service, as, as we know, more effective, more efficient, etc. It's also more effective for the organisation, you're likely to retain them, they're likely to enjoy their job, they're likely to give more of what's magic about them because they feel supported in the environment they're working you know the the benefits are huge but often overlooked in that whole kind of rat race perspective of how much can I get done today and it's so it's really lovely to hear you reflecting as somebody that's at the position of an exec director you know you are you're one run from the top of the ladder so to speak and what we've heard very strongly on other podcasts is people saying Oh, but it's the managers. The managers just expect us to do this, or the managers put the pressure on us, or I can't tell my manager because the way that they will judge me. And I keep trying to break down those barriers and say, when I was a frontline worker, I thought things would get easier as I kind of moved up. And they don't at all. They just get different, but they're just as pressured. And from an emotional resilience perspective, you can feel like you're in a bit of a vice. Do you know, it's coming from the bottom, it's coming from the top. Yeah. And so I, I advocate to people and say, talk to your manager. If they don't know, they can't help you. But that still is a huge barrier for people is people's management style and whether they feel able to go to their manager. And I would, and obviously I've not got any of your staff members here to ask, but from the examples that you're giving, I certainly, if I was a member of your team, would feel able to come to you and go, Anna, do you know what? Actually, I'm on my knees at the moment. Can you? Or I'm seeing those first signs. And if I do something about it now, I know that I'm going to be able to manage, if that makes sense. I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence. Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable. All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive. And really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So Training for Influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. One of the things, I mean, I, I've experienced burnout myself. It's really hard to notice in yourself, or it was for me, I whether I was in denial or not I don't know but you know 
I didn't seek help until my body physically stopped me. But now I look for signs in staff and I'm hoping, I'm hoping if you did ask staff, they would say they'd be able to come. I think one of the things I've learned throughout all my interactions with anybody, whether they be staff, again, our service users, patients, is my sincere belief is everybody's doing their best that they can. And that staff members particularly want to come to work and have a sense of achievement, which means doing their best. I think if you get staff teams to a stage where they're not, they're just going through the motions, that's a leadership issue. But you can see it. you have tools as a manager, you have tools to look at the soft stuff around that engagement when you're talking to staff and whether they're even interested or not, or whether it's the, the hard things like how your sickness rates are, absenteeism, staff turnover, those kind of measures. So I'm looking at those all the time now, the position I'm in. Again, not in this organisation, I took over a service somewhere, the, the sickness rate was over 60%. Wow. And um, that was before COVID. Yeah, yeah, for quite a few years ago now. And I remember sitting down with every member of the team that had this sickness record that they triggered the company policy. And um, I remember them coming in really like nervous, a lot of them saying, I'm really ill, I'm really ill. And that was my, I was like, every time you're off sick, I absolutely genuinely believe that you are ill. You may not have the cold that you've written down on your sick now. But there's a reason you don't want to come to work. So let's sit down and let's talk about why you don't want to come to work. Because you're, you're ill. We're not going to discuss why you've been off so much, as in like, whether it's cold or a bad back. Or, but let's go through what's stopping it. And do you know what? We had some most, the most brilliant conversations with individuals around why they didn't come into work. I mean, some people had had, I remember one individual in a 12-month period that had 47 periods of sickness. That's nearly every week, bearing in mind they got six weeks holiday. Wow. They were really going some. And the fact that I'd written to them and said, this needs to stop, what's going on? It wasn't that blunt, I don't think, but <laughs> that was a really positive thing for them because nobody had ever asked them what was wrong. In their head, nobody cared. There were a small cog in a massive wheel. It didn't really matter. But we had a really brilliant conversation and we changed working patterns. We changed pay rates. We changed, in fact, we dropped the hourly rate of pay and increased the staff team. Uh, and it was all done in lots of different consultation with the team. It was one of the most satisfying things that I think that we did as a collective, that group of people. And it was just looking at sickness levels. And we got so much good. And the service changed. We redid the service as well. But you said some really important things there. So one of the things that you didn't say, but is really clear, is that you as a manager in that role wasn't going out looking for blame. No. Um, that's a huge, huge thing because people do. Unfortunately, when people are feeling under pressure, quite often they'll look for somebody or something else to blame. And actually you come in as the manager from the perspective of actually it's beneficial for us all if we work this out and not looking to blame them is powerful, but setting the culture in itself. And then the other thing that you said there that really resonated with me is, yes, there is small cog in a big system. But sometimes I feel that one of the things that's wrong with the sectors that we work across is that we don't recognise that these small cogs are what are making the system go. 
Absolutely. Um, and that's really important that we recognize that and that we oil them regularly. You know? And everything you said was connected to, you know, the metaphorical oil as in values. You were valuing that person. You took the time to value that person and their contribution. Yeah. And that was one of the things you knew kind of picked up on it. The, I used to pick them up on it and they used to say, but I'm just a support worker. And I used to kind of go, stop using the word just. You're the most essential part of this team. I used to say, if I went missing for two months, three months, you wouldn't miss me. Whereas we would miss you that day. Yeah. And your clients would miss you immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was just kind of re- reframing it really. And the other thing, I suppose, I'm essentially quite a nosy person. So sitting down with us and we got to know each other so well and I got to hear about people's families and you know their hobbies and what they like to do and what they were doing when they weren't at work and what why they came to work and because we like we learned from each other and we learned how we were as human beings rather than managers and support workers we had that connection which then again is further role modeling so when you've got, you know, whoever it is sat in that bed or, or on a chair opposite you, they're not just a client or a patient or what, whoever. They're a human being that you can connect with. And once you do, my God, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what makes all of the difference, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. And do you think, Anna, like you touched on there and you said you've got your own story of kind of burnout and struggling yeah. Do you think it's because you've personally kind of been on this journey and felt this that you feel so strongly? Because you are, although I absolutely believe that there are thousands, if not millions of amazing managers out there, mm-hmm. certainly the story that we hear more often than not from frontline workers is that they don't feel valued. And everything you're saying, you know, I'm wanting to kind of cheer because I hope that managers listen to this and realize the power in, in your words because it makes a huge difference and turns around the team and then enables them to really support service users effectively. Yeah. But I wonder, do you think you think differently because you've had that personal experience or is there something else that kind of has helped you recognise this? Well, that's a hard one because I've had the experience. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't because I was on a very different career trajectory at that point. It was a whole life change, the whole thing. And I was in a culture of, you know, it's been a badge of honour, the hours you could do it. And I was bought into all that. And I was, I perpetuated it. I was part of it, which was why it was hard to see when it was going wrong until it literally physically stopped me. I couldn't move, really. Not even metaphorically, I couldn't move. So it's hard to say, yeah, it's absolutely melded me into the professional and, you know, the person actually I am today. It couldn't not. I wish it hadn't happened to me. It was horrible. I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. And that's why I think I'm a real advocate working in this way is because I wouldn't want it to happen to anyone else. It shouldn't happen to anyone else. And as, a, as an employer, you know, we need to do everything we can to support it not to happen, especially during the current pandemic, because things, you know, it's even more acute at the moment. So I can't really answer. Sorry, I don't know. Because it's happened. So... <laughs> Who knows what would have happened if that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm just going to um start the hashtag that is be like Anna. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> Because what we want from these podcasts is 
we want to help people avoid, you know, being in the position yeah. you were in, being in the position that some of our other guests have been in. I've been really fortunate in my life. There's been times in my early career where absolutely it's been my managers that have spotted the signs and symptoms. And, you know, I'm very, very thankful for them because not only did I not recognize it, I didn't really even understand it, let alone recognize Mm -hmm. it. You know, I'd thrown everything into work and what I was personally needed to get out of work as well to fill me up. And so I'm forever grateful because I've had some excellent managers in my time and now as I'm I'm getting a little bit older and you know hindsight is a wonderful thing and every day is a school day and, and all of that stuff I'm hoping with these podcasts that people will be able to avoid being in those situations but also myself as well do you know I listen to people like yourself and go do you know actually I need to look at different periods within my working life and rebalancing and and it's certainly something that I'm prioritizing much more now And I've just hit my 40th year. So if we're expecting kind of 22, 23 year olds, you know, new to this, very exuberant and, you know, full of life, I guess what tips to, um, because this podcast has been full of tips, but actually as a kind of parting statement, if you could talk to the young Anna that had kind of gone into nursing as the exec director that you are now with the journey that you've had, what would you be saying back then to Anna and what would you be saying to Anna's manager? I think I'd say absolutely be responsible for and look after your own well-being. Don't, I mean, I was 19 when I started nursing, but don't expect anyone else to be looking out for you like you need to look out for yourself. I'd also say it's all all right in the end, because <laughs> it is, and it's a, it's a great ride. <laughs> yeah, look into the future and, you know, no matter how it's, it's all great. Yeah, it worked out. Anna's good now. <laughs> yeah, it all, it's all, yeah, when you see the ending, it's brilliant. Well, not hopefully this isn't the ending, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is just a personal, a really personal thing around my personality was that I was a proper people pleaser. And I say to my children nearly every day, they're adults themselves, and I'm going, first person you need to please is yourself. Because actually what that makes is that you're so comfortable, end up being so comfortable in your own skin, and I am now. Everything else falls into place anyway, and people will either be around you that like that or they're not. But I've stopped worrying about that, and I think that's been um, a big lesson. And learn equally from, I've had some brilliant managers and bosses, but I've had some not so good as well. But again, I come to that, everyone was actually doing the best they could do even those managers and they were probably under their own stresses and strains and they were learning as they were going that would be the other thing I'd say to Anna is have compassion not just for yourself but for everyone else as well because we're all we're all just muddling through the best we can aren't (laughs) we really and you know when I was saying earlier that the people we support and care for are people just like us with the same needs so are those managers yeah Absolutely. And I think that that's a perfect ending, really. <laughs> recognise, have compassion for other people. Recognise, you know, when I was at the beginning of my career, I looked up without a doubt to kind of the next person, the next person, next person, yeah. and expected and thought that they knew more and they knew better. And as I've got older, I've recognised that potentially they know differently. It doesn't mean that they know more or no, yeah. no better. Um, we're all learning from each other but yeah and it's about allowing that to learn and I've got a really great boss at the minute where I know that we learn equally from each other and we both bring a different skill set to the party and that's brilliant and it's yeah 
Yeah. And it will help you stay emotionally resilient and it will help you be able to continue role modeling that for over 300 staff, which will help them deliver the best service they can on the front line to people who, who really need a good service and deserve a good service so that they can then live their best life, change things that they need to stay safe, etc. So, oh, thanks so much for being with me today, Anna. Um, I always like talking to you anyway. Uh, (laughs) You know, this is the first time we've recorded it and this is your first podcast, isn't it? It is, yeah. Ah, well, congratulations. (laughs) You got all the way to the end of it. And I think you've shared some things there that will be undoubtedly really useful not only for people on the front line to give them I guess the power to speak up if somebody hears this and thinks you know what actually I need to go and talk to my manager because they really might not know but Mm. equally for managers to go or hang on a minute am I role modeling this or am I even looking out for my staff team you know, some of the signs that you highlighted there are signs that we can all be looking out for to enable us to then support each other effectively. So thank you for for sharing that. Um, lots of wisdom. Wow, thank you. No, I enjoyed it. It's nice chatting to you as always. Fantastic. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.